0: Hello, I am Cody Ellingham, and this is the Transformation of Value podcast. Today I talk with Mike Lazelle, founder and VP at Red Phase, a New Zealand-based EV fast charging startup, and Brad Henderson, head of engineering and design at ElectroNet. Both of my guests are Bitcoiners and have an extensive background working in the energy sector in New Zealand and abroad. We talk about how the grid works and some of the details of how new generation assets are built and what the future of energy infrastructure might look like in New Zealand. We also dive into the broader theme of proof of work and decentralisation as a philosophy and way of life. Now, if you want to get in touch with me, please send an email to Hello at the com and I will get back to you. I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you would like to support the show, please consider streaming some Satoshis via your favourite podcasting 2.0 platform such as Fountain or Breeze. Otherwise, onto the show. Welcome. Mike? Brad?
1: Yeah, cool. Thanks.
0: Appreciate you guys coming in. Great to be here. Um, I got in touch with you, Mike, um, and we were talking about a few different things. And uh, it seems like there's definitely a um, a lot happening in New Zealand, a lot of thought emerging around this idea of energy, Bitcoin, the opportunities that are present. Um, mm. Before we dive into it though, I am keen to hear a little bit about your guys' background, mm. sort of the journey so far, where you got to, where you are, and what mm. I guess what you do, um, just to kind of situate this conversation, please.
1: Y- yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks, Cody. Um, j- just a little bit to your point about um, a lot going on and energy. Actually, in the last year, I haven't been hearing much. Um, so, um, listening to your podcast for the first time and And hearing some of these conversations, it was my first exposure to the New Zealand Bitcoin community. So that's been really, really great. So great work on getting that going and efforts of you and others working on that. Thank you. Um, My background, I'm I'm an electrical engineer. Uh, Grew up in Borning, New Plymouth. Grew up in Whanganui. Um, Went to high school in Palmerston North. And Canterbury University for electrical engineering. And have spent a few, few early part of my career working um, in New Zealand for power grids, uh, Transpower. power. Um, It's a pretty cool part of the New Zealand power grid. It's got an HVDC link, which is a power link from the South Island to the North Island of New Zealand. And one of my first projects was building uh, like a new connection to that link, so upgrading it. Another one was um, New Zealand's then largest wind farm. just over the back of where we're sitting today, over the back of um, Karori. And I built that working with a really great team from a company called Transfield and, and Meridian Energy. So yeah I've got some pretty cool roots in in Wellington. Um, so four years living here and then five years living in Canada so I've got three kids and um, my daughter was born in Wellington but both boys born in Canada and five years working with power grids over there uh, la- large projects it's a bit of the OE story at the same time. We were actually building a pretty fantastic life over there It was pretty amazing. Calgary's a remarkable place. The cost of living is really low, and the wages are really great. It's very much a proof of work culture. It's very different to New Zealand in that sense. It's an oil and gas country, isn't it? It's an Oil and gas province. Oh, I see.
0: Canada's. Oh, sorry, country hasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oil, yeah country so, the
1: country. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For Al- Alberta is. Yeah. Um, and and the culture in terms of how people live and how people work and everything was very different to Wellington. So that was that was um interesting. We learned a lot, but. In the end, we both have really strong roots in New Zealand, and we wanted to for our kids to grow up here. We wanted our kids to have their barefoot um, childhood and go to school um, here, and you know play sports on the weekends and do all the cool things, cool opportunities that we had. So we decided to move home, and it wasn't an easy choice at the time, but we, we felt like we our best. As my wife, um, Devin, and I decided to move home, and our best choice was to come home, you know, take a job that wouldn't be ideal, but try and build something great and build something together and, like, grow our networks in New Zealand. So we've been home for five years now, six years, and uh, remarkably, it's playing out exactly as we had hoped. It's been a, a huge amount of hard work, but exactly as hoped. So you yeah, have been working with some power grids in New Zealand and doing some really awesome power generation development work, but in the last um, few years, working on a new company with a couple of business partners, one of whom you know, Dustin, um, and um, building in the, uh, I guess it's always with the electrical theme, DC fast charger, space for electric cars, and that, that business is pretty exciting and going really great. It's at early stages, but yeah, it's really cool. So it sort of brings us to the, to, to, to today.
0: Yeah, sweet. Thank you, Mike. And Brad, what's your background?
2: It's just interesting reflecting on some of the stuff Mike's saying. I think uh, a lot of parallels in my story, so Grew up in Christchurch uh, and went to uni there, University of Canterbury also, also electrical engineer and uh, my early part of my career was here in Wellington with Transpower, like Mike, Um, did a couple of years with them and then moved over to Melbourne uh, with my wife and spent eight years working, playing, living over there as a young couple, Um, great city to to really experience sort of a big city culture and hustle and stuff over there so really really enjoyed my time in melbourne and then similar kind of reasons to come back as mike we wanted to start a family wanted them to grow up here in, in new zealand we weren't that keen to come back to christchurch um originally because that's where i'm from but i wanted to try somewhere different and i enjoyed wellington but my wife got a good opportunity to do some more study um in in canterbury um so she did that And so that we ended up back in Christchurch. And again, same kind of story, not taking the ideal job, really, but um, looking to build something and then um, moved into the company that I'm with now after about a year, uh, after trying sort of a little bit of a startup um, for about a year that didn't quite work out. Um, And the company that I've been in now has given me, uh, Electronet's given me heaps of opportunity to explore that leadership space. So I've gradually transitioned from a very sort of purely technical um, deep technical role into the, into the leadership space where I'm now looking after a team of 85 engineers Yeah, uh, as head of engineering there. So, um, yeah, really rewarding, fulfilling work. I've, I've worked with Mike on a, on a bunch of different projects, including a gas power station and Junction Road and, um, more recently some, some new renewable space stuff, which I think we'll, we'll get into mm. talking, talking some of that stuff today, but, mm. um, yeah, really lots happening in the energy industry and it's really. Frothy at the moment, I think is what I (laughs) said to Mike (laughs) in terms of everyone's excited Mm. and wants to get in and build stuff, Mm. and um, we're really keen to sort of think about some of the ways that Bitcoin might might play a role in that, especially. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's great to hear, and I I think it's probably the same story for myself, guys. Actually, you know, I moved over to Japan. Mm. I lived there for five years. I was working in tech, doing photography, a whole bunch of things, and at the time, I needed to get out of New Zealand. I just had Mm. to leave, and coming back, it seems like there's this lifestyle that is attractive here. Mm. Um, but we're struggling, uh, you know, looking at the economy, looking at, you know, the infrastructure, no, the infrastructure, yeah. the innovation, um, you know, uh, it certainly feels like we're, we're falling behind and mm. it's some, certainly something that's been on my mind,
1: mm. um, it's just cost of living. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the equation for living in New Zealand doesn't make sense. Yeah you may as well live somewhere else in the world mm. yep. yeah yeah so it's it, it is it is a struggle and, and it feels
0: like it's um, it's getting worse. Mm. you know it was it was pretty bad when I left you know mm. things felt like there wasn't that much hope you know even Wellington it can feel a bit dated. Mm. Um, but look you know that, that stuff can be a bit negative but looking at the positives though you know there are some really cool things happening as a small country. Mm. Um, we can kind of just get get stuff done and mm. it seems like you know we are it's just these sort of pockets of people working on different projects um and specifically bitcoin you know as you said you know there's you know before we started recording you know you didn't know that there was a bitcoin community even in new zealand mm. um but yet later today we're going to go to a big meetup and meet, you know catch up with a bunch of bitcoiners yeah. talk projects it's very cool um mm. And this has all happened. So I guess circling back to Bitcoin for, for both of you, um, maybe starting with yourself, Mike, what, what's your connection being like? How did you get into
1: learning about Bitcoin? What's your story in regards to that? Yeah, cool. Great question. Through, in, initially it was through my wife. So she's a real um, sort of thinker and uh, innovator in terms of new ideas and trying things out and sort of seeing trends before they come, Just how she's wired. And she brought up, oh, there's a new money, it's called bitcoin it would have been 2015 and i'm sort of naturally quite pessimistic of some new radical technologies because i guess my engineering mind would kind of say the odds of that being real are pretty low so I'll, I'll just park that and let it sit there and one day i was bored at work and i just thought i'll start thinking about blockchain apparently it's got this thing called blockchain and so i'll just work out in my head so i'm clear about how that works just bought a piece of paper and it made sense and i was like "Hmm, okay i guess one of those fundamentals checked out it gets the, it gets the tick but um then didn't get even any more interested until 2017 and, and didn't buy any um even in those times so it's probably only in 2021 <laughs> um my wife was working in 2020 so the year that COVID was really ravaging 2020 um my wife was working in finance and she wanted to be able to explain to people why bitcoin was something that you should stay well clear of and she wanted to be able to explain like why it wasn't something you should invest in and all the risks and be able to explain that succinctly in the um sort of traditional finance environment and so she started reading books and listening to podcasts and she completely failed at that <laughs> after after two months she had me um listening to the what is money show with robert breedlove and michael saylor and both of us had these Oh wow, we had no idea that this is what this is, um, and that was a, a violent fall into the rabbit hole, I guess. Yeah, year, in yeah. In twenty twenty,
0: yeah. What about yourself,
1: Brad?
2: Uh, I I went to a conference back in twenty seventeen. I think it was called the Singularity New Zealand Conference, based in Christchurch. It was an awesome conference, like lots of key thinkers uh, in all kinds of different spaces, like agri tech and um, the future of finance, future of engineering, all that kind of stuff um and that sort of exposed me to the well bitcoin for the first time mm. um what is this thing and um I, I went all in. i didn't go all in but i i, I bought some <laughs> i <Nice. laughs> had, had to do the whole um do the whole you know get the photo send a send it to some dodgy person through i think what was the name of that exchange that i used back in the day it was i can't quite remember but um yeah did the, did the photo was send it binance back. no it wasn't Binance. it oh. it was like a um sort of web-based it had a sort of Clunky user interface. Oh. Um, I can't. It'll come to me later. Yeah. But um, anyway, so I bought some bought some coin, and this is in the beginning of sort of 2017, and I don't know if you remember, but 2017 was the year that the the bubble, the huge bubble yeah, happened, did, the did first a, big bubble, did a pump. And um, so I think it was about five hundred dollars a coin where I bought. I might have bought like a hundred dollars worth or two hundred dollars worth or something, um, and I just sat on it. Um, but then by December that year, Bitcoin was worth twenty thousand um, US dollars or something a coin. And I was like. I just like you know 10xed my my money <laughs> through through just by accident and I was like this doesn't feel right it doesn't feel right uh, it just feels like a bubble and I have got to get out so I sold out got got rid of everything <laughs> and um and then I kind of just almost sort of forgot about it mm. um for for a few years and I, again through talking to you um sort of found a kindred spirit mm. uh, Mike and and bitcoin and that rekindled my interest and then I started thinking a little bit more about what it was and and what it meant uh, prior to that i just thought it was some almost like a bit of a scam or you know like a a way to lose money easily with the volatility and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. so um i think in the last couple of years i've you know, done more reading and i and now mm-hmm. i really and listen to podcasts like yours um cody and I feel like I get it more now um, as a store of value. Mm,
0: yeah. Mm. It's interesting. You mentioned this logical kind of engineering background, which both of you share. Um, you know, obviously, you can see the mess that's in my studio. You know, I'm more of an artist and a, and a creative thinker. And I think there's certainly something about Bitcoin which makes it very hard for people. Um, you know, a lot of my friends who are developers, programmers, that sort of thing, they, they look at it and they think there's just no way this can work, you know, because you've got to run the maths out. you got to. Look at, look at the whole thing. And I mean, there are, you know, there are no, there's no faith required. You just have to do it. And, mm-hmm. and in a roundabout way, I actually find that easier. You know, I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But mm-hmm. it's the revolutionary thinking and the, uh, the change, the kind of the challenge to your worldview that it actually can make people very uncomfortable. Yeah, hundred yes. percent.
2: You're like, well, who's who's backing this money? That's exactly. Where's, right. where's the government?
0: Mm. Where, where, you know, <laughs> how are they going to le- legislate it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and so I've I've found it almost like the people who should who who ought to understand it best, people who are in fintech or finance already, people who are software developers, are actually often the ones who don't get it. That's exactly right. It's exactly my experience too. Yeah. Yep. Um, whereas people who you wouldn't expect to understand it, people like farmers, um, people who work on the land. Mm. Um, creative people mm. they actually like yeah that fully makes sense um, and yeah, if you look at proof of work as a concept you know mm. for someone who works on the land it's like yeah you, you can't get out more than you put in you like mm. you you got to do the work mm. and and also for creative thinkers i think you know you can also start imagining or well, look politically you know culturally you know I, i've seen you know the history of of different things and the, the world is, is in a constant state of change And we're in change right now and we will continue to change and so to hope that things will just be the way they were is that's the only thing that isn't going to happen you know 100 yeah um and so that is challenging though because when you are interfacing that that rough um you know wilderness that exists between government and people trying to kind of get stuff done you know trying to convince um large corporations or businesses to invest in this technology and build out whether it's mining infrastructure or you know, connecting it with the electrical grid and stuff like that, or whether it's from the legislative point of view, how do you, you know, how do you com- communicate something that's necessarily quite revolutionary? It, it doesn't come easily, I don't think. Yeah, mm. and
2: you've got to realize that people are invested in keeping the system as it benefits them, right? So um, it's there's going to be a lot of resistance to change, and there always is. Um,
1: I think this example of do kids get it? It's like Steve Jobs gave the iPad to some kids as his as best test. And it was by far the best test because they just got it. And I, I, Cody, I just copied exactly what you suggested with um, setting your kids up for them to be digital natives. Yeah. And indoctrinated my kids yeah. <laughs> to be Bitcoiners. And it's like completely effortless with them. Yeah. I've got no barrier to thinking that there could be a new money and that a new money is a good idea. Yeah. It, it, it's Sure
0: yeah and the you know the the children they 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 thus they're learning this language of um you know of bitcoin, and for them you know there's no preconceptions, there's no a priori assumptions around what money should be mm. um and it's actually us who are the ones who are looking at it and like, well, yeah, I still trust you know implicitly the branding of a bank or something mm. you know that has a certain value to me. Um, but I can see that, um, disappearing over time. And especially, um, as we enter this brave new world, you know, for children, like they might never, ever touch a bank. They'll just be fully self custodying their their funds, you know, and it will be this archaic institution. Um, maybe the post office is a good example, but you know, when was the last time you went into a post office? Like they used to run your, your, your banking, your, um. You know, telephone. All of that stuff used to go through post offices. Um, they were like a government department, mm-hmm. and we've seen that change over time. Um, and so, looking at what that future holds, I mean, with what you guys are working on, I mean, from that electrical grid side of things, I mean, what's
1: what have your discoveries been? What are the opportunities that you've identified? Yeah, yeah great, great question. I think it's different in the area like power grids and generation that we can, I guess, bring value to the conversation. Um, Probably the one one point you just touched on, which is well, one thing New Zealand does do well, is innovating, and we're resourceful, right? We're resourceful as as a, a, a people, and so doing things first is a good, a, quite a big opportunity for New Zealand. It's the ifos example, right? Where ifos was trialled here first. So, so um, I like guess one of the areas that we can see opportunity is around the energy market and energy in general and there's a global transition to uh, electrification of everything and it's what's a part of the um, sustainability story is to getting off fossil fuels as core energy sources and get onto renewable electrical sources so so that's that's one area and then I guess the particular area of of experience and and expertise and certainly one where Brad works is in power grids and kind of you need need to understand power grids at, at a core and electrical power systems to then work out where the opportunities are for bitcoin so um yeah brad do you want to talk a bit about um the renewable or the power generation market and space in new zealand
2: yeah it's um do you want to touch on that first or maybe the sort of talk about the trilemma i don't know yeah yeah let's do it yeah okay so let's talk about the the, there's this concept in energy called the the trilemma um which essentially is a. think of it as a triangle and on the peaks of the triangle you've got energy equity which is basically, can you afford to, to pay for the energy? Um, the other peak you've got is security. So is that supply of energy going to be there in the future? And is it reliable? And uh, on the other corner, uh, you've got sustainability. So is it, is it produced in a way that's, um, sustainable for the community and the world in terms of green and, and low carbon and, and all those good things, um, impact on the land etc. et cetera. So, Obviously, the world is, is big at the moment and trying to transition to more sustainable sources of energy, but that comes with a with a cost. Um, renewables have historically been very, very expensive um, relative to, to gas-fired or coal-fired um, types of power generation. Although in the past few years, what we've seen is the, the cost of things like solar and wind has come down dramatically. Um, so much so that in most places, in the Western world at least, uh, it's actually cheaper now to to build a, a solar or a wind farm than it is to any other form of generation mm, mm. Uh, from it from a capital cost perspective, um, and, and this is partly behind uh, at the moment in New Zealand we've got this frothiness or renewables mm, mm, boom mm, that's mm. that's developing where so the, with
1: the with the coal and um, g- uh, gas comparison and you don't need to pay for fuel you don't need to pay with, for fuel with wind and yep. solar so that that adds to the economics so everybody's very bullish on on the future for mm. for for
2: wind and solar but the big disadvantage is you as you probably know with you can think about it, if you think about solar as an example um, a form of energy it's not there at night time and and when do we in New Zealand traditionally need most of our energy it's at six o'clock at night turn the heater on mm. on a cold winter's night mm. it's dark outside there's no there's no solar power mm. so what are you going to do um, so you might get a bit of wind energy there, but you, you can't, but basically can't rely on solar and wind for your entire energy needs. It's, it's just not going to work. Um, you need some form of storage in order to back that, that energy up. Or the base load to just keep everything going. So yeah. to keep everything going, exactly. Yeah. And, and you need to be able to, that needs to be flexible. So it needs to be able to move up and down. Um, and so Mike, why don't you want do you want to talk a little bit about how we, cause this is where it sort of crosses into the whole Bitcoin space, I think is how we get a renewable power plant built um, and particularly touching maybe on the, the finance side of things. Cause I think that's,
1: that's the, that's the sort of really interesting part of this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I've oh, got background in developing power generation. Uh, yeah, I guess there's, there's sort of five parts to um, what, what a uh, someone who wants to develop power generation ha- has, has to do. Ultimately they're looking to make a return on their investment. So that's what m- many of the, uh, people that engineers like ourselves are working with are looking to invest in an energy investment to make a return and so to do that in pretty much the whole western world it's the same recipe um, they're looking for uh, land somewhere where they can tap the resource so that could be um a, a high wind zone or sorry a, a, a high a wind zone has a high average wind speed um, so is good for a wind a wind farm or it could be a sunny area which has got lots of sunshine so it's good for a solar farm so land then they need um, something called an offtake agreement, so someone who's going to buy the power. And it's called a power purchase agreement, PPA, and they'll be looking to sign that before they even decide to build the power plant, before they even finance it, put the money in, um, because it's what secures the, the revenues in the future, it's what's going to back that investment. And then they need, so generally it's called permits, in New Zealand it's called resource consent, but all around the world there's some kind of um, permitting procedure to go through with local bodies and governing bodies re- regulators on to get approval to actually build a thing and to manage all of the, the objections and then the last thing they need grids, is the power grid yeah, um, so with those four things they'll be able to form a, a business case and as a, as a company make an investment decision mm. um, themselves, so that, that's kind of the recipe. It's what all power developers are doing at the moment. They've all got sort of slightly different derivations of how they do each of the four elements. But that, that's that's the recipe.
0: What's the um, turnaround time on something like that from uh, idea to turn the, the
1: the switch on? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I would say if you did, uh, kind of the first measure is when you tip the money in, that's when all the financial commitments get made. If you could turn that around and, 12 to 15 months, you'd be a pretty high-performing developer with a pretty spectacular resource and, um, like, strong um, uh, PPA. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a long process. Yeah, And then but, you got to build the thing.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we're seeing these projects play out over multiple years. Um, e- even just looking at resource consenting alone, it, that for a wind farm, that can take
0: eight years. Yeah, because I, I think that's what I feel is that um, the governmental apparatus and the regulatory side is what must take the time i um, mean looking at trying to build a dam or anything you know um was it ruotani dam in Hawkes bar i mean i'm sure that's been around for decades that project or transmission gully all of these projects where it's like the actual building is a 24 month yeah. engagement but the, the rest of it and what drives that reticence to you know like, what why is it so sluggish to engage with the regulat- regulators
2: I think it's not just the regulators. You do need to engage with community mm. um, and give them a say. And I think that's, that's built into our Resource Management Act in, in New Zealand is, is giving the community a say. But what, what we do see um, is that you can have one dissenting voice that um, can hold up a project. Mm. Um, they, they can say, oh, I don't like the, the project. And the example at the moment is, you know, the, you can't build a solar farm because the land's productive for sheep or, or dairy farming. And you're taking away cows and sheep from the from the national fleet of cows and sheep, mm. and so that's not that's that's deemed to be not a good thing. So yeah, I think you, you do and that you do need to engage with the community, but I think maybe we need to tweak the settings in New Zealand so that it's not the the whole process doesn't get held hostage by one or two dissenting people.
0: Has it has there been recently? Didn't the RMA get scrapped or changed quite drastically? What's the story with that?
1: Uh, yeah, there is a reform under development. Um, that i'd call it more nibbling around the edges yeah. there hasn't mm. been a, yeah. a unilateral um, replacement or anything
2: well they, they are replacing the rma with three different new acts um the, the whole idea behind it was to simplify and make things easier but i think they've, they've gone from one axe to now to now three and uh, something like 700 pages to 800 pages so i'm not sure they're achieving the objective of mm. making it easier
1: I think gen- generally having a consultative process for building, we'll call it, these, these are all large assets which have sometimes quite serious impacts on people. That, that's yep. a good idea, right? It is that, good. Yep. That, in, the, in, the, in the past, think, think big of the Muldoon era. They would just go and commandeer land and build things and um, take property from property owners to build assets on and yep. um, there was no consultation at all so having having this process is enormously important when the resource management act was brought in it was it was heralded as a advancement in, in policy and i think generally it's important to have that process And around the world it's not done well and they do exploit resources at the expense of people but i think what brad's pointing out is the number of projects that try to get through uh consultative process versus how many actually get through it's very low and it's very slow and it's a real problem for New Zealand yeah Yeah. it's interesting you mentioned Muldoon I mean I went out to
0: Mangakino um uh, maybe a couple of years ago and and just seeing the old dams that they've got out that way um there's a couple on that um in that area you know that were built in that in Mm. in that in the 70s and you know you realize you know that it almost feels unimaginable that they could do that again today. Mm. Like the city, the, the town of Mangakino was built from, you know, I mean, I think there was a settlement there but it was pretty much built from scratch. Same with Twizel. We we used to build stuff in New Zealand like, and
2: people used to relocate to make new towns to build stuff and oh, yeah, good. you're right, I, I just,
0: I couldn't see that happening today. There's some great um, documentaries looking at, is it is it the Clutha? No, there, there's another big dam down. Yeah, it's Clu- uh, the Clyde. Clyde but, Dam, yep. yeah. Um, there was a documentary and they had like shops and schools and they basically built it and it was this kind of you know new vision and i often think you know from that kind of geologic perspective like in the 60s you know they they could do stuff like this and then and today you know we 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 can't and i appreciate there is the need to talk with people and consult but there's also directives and needs you know we need power we need you know a secure energy supply and it's like the longer you leave it, you've got to pay for it at some point. Yeah,
1: I've got some thoughts on that. Hydro stands alone. There's no other power generation that like stops a whole watercourse foot forever. So it has that amount of impact on the land. So your point is that they don't do it anymore. I, I suspect there won't be many large hydro developments globally ever again. You don't build hydro anymore. It's, it's, it, it is an enormous impact on the environment. And so, so damming up entire rivers like they do in the Yangtze, like they've gone and done at Itaipu in Brazil, and, and all around the world, these mega hydro projects, they displace millions. They they do cause environmental harm, but the main thing is, they can never be taken away. So if we went and made f- like fusion power, like cheap electricity. They're not pulling out the Clyde Dam. Yeah, well, it's about, it's a valuable asset, right? That thing's gonna even even with fusion reactors, that thing's such a valuable asset. They'll they'll never pull it out. But versus what wind and solar, the, a better technology comes along, you, you can pull them out. Repower. Yes, yeah, yep. so I, I do think they are superior in that sense, and that the solutions they're just not large scale hydro. There's other solutions in that in, with with new tech.
0: Yeah, it's interesting though because nuclear has a lot of negative connotations, right? And so we're in this. You're talking about the trilemma. What, coming back to that, like what from what perspective is, is that? From a, an energy, from a development perspective, is that. Or well, like, like, what context do you look at the trilemma through? Uh,
2: you can look at it in in multiple contexts, I think. But I, where it's generally formulated is in a sort of national context. There's a, I think it's called the World Energy Council. They they rank countries
0: actually with, with this um, trilemma. New Zealand's got a very high ranking. I think we're ninth in the world. Because um, it almost feels like there's another piece to it, which is the political. And I feel like that that is what we're we're facing at the moment. Because you know, how do you you know, you can have something which actually solves all of those and and in a way i mean nuclear if done properly i feel could be an option but uh then you've got the political baggage of that which is very difficult to overcome yeah i agree and maybe it should be an energy square not an energy tri-
2: triangle <laughs> but um yeah that you're, you're right politics is super important in the in the energy game and um yeah we can't nuclear is a an interesting and solution it's it's pretty expensive but you can argue that's partly because of all the regulation that's around the the safety mm, But mm. Um, we're never going to... I can't foresee us building nuclear reactors in, in New Zealand, but just because we, we're a nuclear-free country mm. we're, and that, that's a mm. a wedded thing that the population is wedded to, that the politics is wedded to. And would we give that up?
1: I don't know. I, I find it hard to see at the moment, but you know, things are possible. The, the argument against nuclear probably really stems from we're on the Pacific Rim. We're going to be exposed to these megathrust earthquakes, um, over a long enough period with tsunamis and it's like is it inconceivable that you'll get no fallout no waste, no breach of these reactors and i don't think there's many engineers around who'd be able to attest that they're that robust that even like a 9.5 earthquake couldn't couldn't rupture it whereas in other places where it's a lot more geologically stable it's a strong argument though no, this this thing's secure yeah, like Australia. I mean, Australia's yeah, right. got
2: you've got their uranium as well. You know mm-hmm. the, why they're not building nuclear reactors? Is, is
1: anybody's guess. But and and New Zealand is blessed, so we have yeah. some of the best renewable resources in the world, um, particularly wind. Um, so it's not like sort of many other parts on Earth who don't have that resource and don't have another option, so they can only rely on gas. Um, that's interesting as well. I was talking to somebody recently and. So
0: this is a bit of a bit of a curveball, but they were talking about um, some massive steps forward in uh, is it fusion, cold fusion? Um, there were some announcements recently. Do you? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure if that was. The it's right. not cold fusion; sorry. it's hot fusion. But hot, yeah, hot yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, was, and he he was saying, yeah, there's it's sort of just slipping under the radar, but there's some massive developments in the last few months. Do you know anything about that? I know a little bit, mainly through like the Lex Friedman
2: podcast that you mentioned oh, earlier. The way had one of the yeah. um one of the proponents of one of these companies that's that's building these advanced fusion reactors and super, super interesting um, tech. And um, a lot of it's come about through advances in um, electromagnet technology and, and you know, uh, material science, which is, which is creating the ability to confine this plasma um, in a much more um, condensed way. And, and it's enabling these, you know, potential game-changing technologies, which it would be, um, the promise of, free energy but it remains to be seen you know can they commercialize it right Mm. it's one thing to have a fusion reactor in the lab but can you can you build it at scale and get energy out there's a lot of really hard problems Mm. that are still to be solved in in that space
1: does fusion solve the long half-life contamination problem or do you still get radioactive concrete for decades
2: you, you do get some radioactivity on this on the vessel, I believe, um, but but largely it solves the radioactive mm. radioactivity problem. It, it mm. solves the safety problem as well. Mm. It's, it's it's actually not much contained energy and things like that. So it's 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 a dream technology in a lot of ways, but uh, can it be can it be built uh, affordably? I think and
0: commercialized. Yeah. That's the that's the challenge. Yeah, I think that's where you know looking at. Um, science fiction, you know, going back into the archives and seeing the way people spoke about the future once upon a time, you realize, you know, we are in this really strange period where imagination seems to have gone away. You know, everything is reductive and almost retrograde. Um, And so how, how, I mean, how do you visualize a future where we've got energy abundance? How do you then go and build it? Because if you can't imagine it, then you can't do it. And I, I often think, you know, you just go back to, Isaac Asimov, or you know any of these writers, and they were imagining this abundant future. And now we're talking about um, use less, gen less. You know, um, there's a campaign in the Dominion Post. You know, gen less, as in turn off your your heater. And it's like, if I turn off my heater, I'm going to freeze. Well, yeah, yeah. my house has it's got no totally no, the wrong way to look at things. You know, yeah. and and it's like, what I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Sort of how we got to this point with this.
1: Um, this yeah. I've got a take on the on the consumption side. Yeah. So. I think that's a it's a good and interesting argument um energy abundance is one of the root drivers of a prosperous civilization and always has been yeah. since the dawn of time so the ability to make fire enabled us to transport like this pent-up energy and mm. carbohydrates and wood and then move it around and we'd have heat and could live in cold climates where we couldn't live before so yeah. so like the technology that unlocked wood and then fire in itself unlocked that so energy abundance completely agree we need to be driving the cost of energy down that's what makes it abundant and that's what will create an abundant society i feel like it's been conflated with this other great philosophy of just consume consume less like what you have rather than want more Hmm. which is like the stoic philosophy like you talk a lot about marcus aurelius and it's exactly what he talks about but they've conflated the two together so now i should feel guilty about what you're consuming energy like energy is work energy gets things done energy moves the world forward and it's going to make it more prosperous and, and better for everyone in the future and yeah so
0: I agree with that yeah well it's also um I think that this is where I think it's interesting looking at it through a Bitcoin lens because on the outside it does seem reasonable you know it's it's it, the argument at a glance does seem to make a little bit of sense you know if I just take it easy and 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 you know turn off the lights you know maybe I'm going to save some power but when you actually understand how power generation works that you know the you you don't just you you know, you you're actually not making any difference. You know, um if there's a huge amount of demand maybe they spin up in your turbine and, and it starts with that process, but um that's it's such a complex process that you know the the consumer's change is even either they might not even make a difference. Um and in fact the only difference is that you're you're freezing in your house. Yeah. Um and you're in the dark. And but it's like it feels good, maybe? It's sort of, mm. yeah, it's kind of a style. It feels good thing. to be an agent, right? Mm. To feel
2: like you can you can influence change. Um, yeah. And you, you're you
0: right. Uh, you're just such a tiny player in that energies market that voting... I'm curious, just um, talking about, you know, six o'clock at night, that's sort of the, you know, the, 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 the period when, you know, the solar would stop being, you know, really relevant and the consumers were coming home. But in New Zealand, I mean, how much... Is consumer and how much is industry? Like I imagine, there's factories running twenty four seven that are using huge amounts of power. Like, what? And do you have any idea what those numbers are like? For yeah,
2: there's there's still a we we call it the it's called the duck curve in the industry. So the, the way that the power uh, the demand changes over over the day, um it's still quite uh, evident and still quite prevalent. Like you you do have that evening and morning peak when you know people get in get up in the morning and Turn the put the kettle on and, and put the toaster on and and all that kind of stuff and then the industry ramps up as well.
1: I think that's what drives the duck curve. It's the overlap between industrial usage and consumer usage. Mm. And yeah, those factories go twenty four seven, but then the consumer usage is ramping down. Yeah. In terms of proportion, what would it be? The, the peak Zealand? versus the base load. No, no, industrial versus consumer.
2: Oh, yeah. so that's it's a to the to a first approximation, it's about a third, a third, a third with um, industrial consumer commercial oh, cool. um, slightly more industrial slightly less commercial but that, that's the rough and that would be
1: in the end it changed around the world if you've got cheap electricity you get much higher industrial load because things like aluminium smelting is viable there
2: yeah we, we actually have a higher proportion of industrial than is typical because we've got the like the ty smelter yeah. which is a is a big component of our of our load is that still so,
0: is that still operating yeah it is yeah interesting
1: yeah, yeah it'll, it'll be um it, it's it's it was ty was built to provide an offtake for Marapuri. But now that it's there, you kind of think of it producing some of the world's greenest aluminium. So that that asset will be a jewel in Rio Tinto's crown. They'll talk about pulling it out. But in these worlds, sustainable aluminium is a pretty fantastic branding exercise. for. Yeah.
2: That's, a, that's a great segue mm. too for the, how Marapuri got built mm. because it had a, a partner load, right? So this is what we're talking about now that's with right. the the future of the energy industry in New Zealand. What's the load going to be? that that partners with this new renewable generation Mm. and and this is where we feel there's a role for for bitcoin mining Mm. in particular Mm. to to be that load because it is very energy intensive by design and it's important that it is Mm. and you need to you need to provide that generation and it can underwrite the development of some of this generation which is
0: which is super exciting so that that's a narrative that's emerged um however you know, interpreting that and looking at it closely, it's there's also questions about whether that is going to be long term viable, or whether there needs to be another piece in that uh, supply chain with that uses the heat output to to then subsidise that. And so, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Have you run any sort of scenarios in your head, or, or, or talked about how purely just being in the grid infrastructure? versus actually being part of a, a you know some sort of low-grade heat
1: process how could that work um it's a great question I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the co-location of something so that you can mine and use the, the low-grade heat elsewhere it, it's a really good point yeah Brad can you
2: have you thought much about it uh, yeah it's I, I haven't thought too much about it either but it's a great idea I mean you've got obviously you're going to generate a, a huge a huge amount of heat. Um, from the mining, and if you can repurpose that for community heating, they do that a lot in some of the northern European countries. They have these countries, they have these community heating facilities where they pipe the, the heat around the, the neighborhood, and that's usually gas that that runs those things or, or diesel. Um, if you could do something similar with a you have a huge Bitcoin uh, industrial center and you might you mine and you pipe that heat around the community, that I mean that that's an amazing idea.
1: Mm. I I don't quite think of sort of the next step in in game community integrated with Bitcoin mining would make sense. But I think at the moment I think of Bitcoin miners as the dung beetles of energy. They're just like crawling around looking for the cheapest energy they can find. I won't say anywhere in the world, we'll call it in a stable government, somewhere where they've got some kind of um just general protections of operating company. So so Bitcoin miners will be located at the ends of countries, like mm-hmm. right down the bottom where power's the cheapest and mm. they'll go and put them in a in a shed like next to manapuri would be the obvious one or that's actually i think that is actually happening pioneer energy might have a trial down in the deep south they do yeah and it's just the energy they just can't monetize effectively so it's going to be wasted so initially bitcoin miners are just going to use waste energy waste electricity it, it, it wouldn't otherwise make it to market and with bitcoin miners you can get it to market and, and then in game absolutely integrating it with communities um, um and efficiently would would make sense too yeah
0: i mean that's where i'm really interested in in kind of these emergent effects because you know if you look back at you know the 50s or something you know and you look at what they thought the future would be it was running it based on what had happened previously and it didn't mm. take into account the step change and you know i think you know like we got the the, the s9 running there in the corner so i'm not using the heater mm. and you know, if you, you know assume there's going to be developments in, in ASIC technology, there's going to be the maybe the development of uh, different kinds of chips that are a lot more modular that can be put into anything, basically. I mean, what does a future look like where every single device that has any kind of heat um, generation is basically just an ASIC? Just yeah.
1: thermodynamically, I suspect that heat pumps will... In- um, will still be more efficient than using a yeah. for heating. Yeah, they will. Yeah, and and unfortunately for process heat, or you mentioned it, it's called low grade because it can really only be used for a few things. Um, high grade heat, which you can use for a lot of industrial processes, I think it's about three hundred C, and you won't like you won't get that e- yeah. ever out of a, mm. a Bitcoin system. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point.
0: Yeah, no, that, and I, I I do agree with that. Like the um, like heat pumps, they um, uh, i would be interested actually to hear your thoughts on on that, but I understand it because it, there's a compressive element to it, right? So it doesn't it, it 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 can you can get more heat out of it? Yeah, it's than like you, a three to one. Yeah, yeah, three
1: or four to one. Some of the best systems yeah. Yeah. Yep. Whereas if you just had the heat, you know, like a, a one to one, one yeah. to one. You so, know. so it literally pumps heat from the outside, so it makes the outside colder. So let's say the outside temperature was ten degrees C, it would the exhaust temperature will be like 8 or 7 degrees C and that heat that's taken from the outside air to put on the inside through your compressive technology. yeah mm-hmm. um, so I've got this exact question myself just yeah. moving into um, a new house we're going to be working out of the garage it's cold so I need to put some heat in so <laughs> my wife and I are debating heat pump versus bitcoin heater <laughs> and obviously I should just buy the bitcoin heater because um, I'm really committed to because you've got the laser eyes this space. yeah because yeah. yeah. I've got laser eyes yeah my hunch is that heat pump will still be more economic. Well, is yeah. there is there ways? I mean, I'm
0: uh, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but is there any ways to combine those two together somehow?
1: Like no, no, or oh, not not intuitively. Um, a heat pump um converts electrical electric energy into um like a compressor, so through an electric mechanical, motor, so mechanical, mechanical work, yeah. Um, and that's actually a high efficiency conversion. Um, whereas heat doesn't convert into anything efficiently no it's a byproduct yeah. right heat yeah. is always
2: the the end game yep. from any process right it's the it's the bottom of the thermodynamic chain yep. so it's hard to do stuff with it yeah
0: yeah i say especially the low-grade heat because you know you're not able to boil water you're not able to really do anything to get steam or anything like that though glass houses yeah great for space space heating is yeah it's yeah. Great. yeah yeah so i mean maybe that's uh is that perhaps a long tail then so there's a you know there's heat space spatial heating um and then you're still going to maintain this just purely mining um, as a load balancing uh, function, and and whether the heat's being used or not is is not really relevant, perhaps. I, I think the yeah, yeah in in game, yeah,
2: it's, a, in, it's, in a, game it's an additional bit of gravy, right? Sure, if, sure if you gravy. Can, yeah. if you can get that,
1: it's it's not going to drive sort of some of the core investments, and in, which will drive change, change, and um and adoption. I think it's the grid security that interests Brad and I. It's Bitcoin helping with grid security because that's the piece that's um, not well understood. Yeah. Everyone is focusing on sustainability. And just as a New Zealand example, in August of 2021, there was um, blackouts in New Zealand power grid. 30,000 customers, um, mainly in the Waikato, were without power on the coldest night of the year. They couldn't have their lights on. They couldn't run their heaters. And so that's like starting to get to third that is a third world country situation, right? And that wouldn't have happened in New Zealand. Well and that and that's part of the trilemma. Part of the trilemma yeah, yeah. So yeah. so that focus on, on security. And what you're seeing, so just the example of where Bitcoin can help this is in Texas. They have um, large legacy coal and gas fired power plants. And with so many renewables on, they would be dumping a lot of their energy during all parts of the day. So if there's a lot of solar and a lot of wind. Those coal and gas, they would um, they would just spin them, shut down. yeah, yeah, or, or completely turn them off. Mm. Um, and then when all the renewables go away, their grid's got a huge security problem. So what they end up having to do is to run these things like in, incredibly inefficiently, just as a as a ready to go standby generator. It it takes twelve hours to turn a coal power plant on, so that means you need to have it already warm. If it's going to respond to one of these grid events, yeah. So what they're doing over in Texas is instead of wasting their energy, which they have to use anyway, anyway to they have to run the power plant anyway to secure the grid, they're actually doing something worthwhile with it, which is hashing right right next to the the power plant. Yeah. So Bitcoin is the, um, it's like this cheap base offtake, which enables them to keep these security assets going. And without it, um, they would be wasting it all. Mm. Building a i guess a, a blueprint or a mental
0: model for how how the grid works in New Zealand um i would be curious just to just to discuss that because I know I think there's a few key locations in terms of places like Huntley power Station and that that people mm-hmm. are aware of but if you actually look on um yeah you know at a map of of locations there's actually a huge amount of smaller generation sites throughout New Zealand um how does it work here and also looking at things like peaking um and and how that works like what is I mean, and even that Waikato blackout that you mentioned—like, how did that happen? Like, what's—is New Zealand fully integrated together? We got the connection between North and South. Like, how how does that the grid work in, in New Zealand? Oh, there's there's Sorry. a lot to unpack.
2: there. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a great question, Cody. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to start at the start, Brad? <laughs> well, I was just going to touch on the segueing back to the innovation and the Kiwi innovation part. We actually have a a functioning and it's debatable with how good it is, but a functioning electricity market in New Zealand, you know, and it was an early example of of an electricity market being put in around the world. It was done in the mid-90s and it's still basically operating the same way that it did then. So uh, essentially what happens is generators, they, they bid in a price um, for providing the energy um, and then there's a corresponding bid from load in order to buy the energy retailers and they, they meet in the middle somewhere. Um, and the way that you think, well, that, how's that going to work? Because, you know, we need a certain amount of energy and if the price isn't right, do they just turn people off? Um, well, it doesn't work like that. So there's a price for the load that needs to be supplied and then what happens is the, all the generators end up getting paid that strike price. So if it's, say, $50 a megawatt hour, that's the, the price that enables the final unit to come on to meet that final unit of load. If that's $50 an hour, then all the other generators, the renewables, everything else that's bid in, even at lower amounts, they all still get paid that that $50. So that's sort of the functioning of the market. There's, there's a lot to explore there, but it's a very high-level overview. We have a very robust functioning electricity market. It's been hashed out over 25 years. You could argue a little bit that it's like markets do. It's got a weighting towards the the near-term and not not the long-term. So there's some mm. challenges with it in terms of long-term long-term incentives for, for building these projects that we talked about earlier that, that take five, six, seven years sometimes to, to get off the ground. So that there's not there's a little bit of lack of alignment of, of incentives there with the market that, that's a, a challenge. Um, but but coming back, I guess, to the overall New Zealand, how it functions in terms of a grid, we are, we are an interconnected grid. There's a DC, DC link between D- Direct the, current. Direct current, yeah. Thanks, Mike. Um, most of the grid is AC, or alternating current um by and that just comes from a natural um process of, of the way that most of generation is, is a rotating machine and that generates a, a rotating
0: um, field yeah so that's why it's alternating current and then the dc is just a function
1: tesla beat edison yeah so back. is
0: that sorry is that so that dc um was that i mean you said so you worked on that right yeah <clears throat> was that an engineering feat to get that laid i mean that's like yeah, that I mean, was pioneering. That was
2: also pioneering in New Zealand. Yeah. You know, we we were we were the at the time it was built. As the, I think it was the second DC link in the world, and and it was ten x of, of the next biggest one. So in we, terms of scale, in terms of scale, mm. yeah, yeah. So we, we were six hundred megawatts. The
0: previous biggest one in the world was like sixty megawatts. Mm. So um, sorry, just um, dwelling on that, what does that enable? So uh, like you know, you've got um.
1: Clyde Dam, you got Wellington. I mean, how how far can that load be transmitted? It, it enables uh, cheap South Island hydroelectricity to be sold to the North Island. And mm. anywhere in the North Island? Like, what was there a yeah, limit? Yeah, sure, Pretty, sure, pretty, pretty much. much. Because it comes into, like, Haywoods, just up the road from where we are, and then gets transmitted on that AC high-voltage network around the rest of the North Island. Oh, so yeah. it's almost starting again from that from
0: that point. Because so, I know there is, like, a, a geographic limit, right, to how far... You can send ac
1: is it it's like 500 kilometers or something like that or uh yeah, yeah. so the dc link is built because it's quite a long way but also because because underground cable piece yep, that's the, the 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 straight. straight yeah so when you've got a cable and a long distance you just get less losses using dc i see yeah yep. um and so that means we've we've got a
0: unique situation where there's minimal hydro in the north island but we still have access yep. to that price point still quite a lot
1: but nothing compared to the south yeah yeah yep. yeah
0: yeah, oh, sorry, you're right. You know, there is a bit up um, the Waikato Central, Central yep. Plateau, Waikato. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, those mega mega operations down south. So we we get access there. And does that mean there's a consistency in price yes. throughout New Zealand? Yeah. So the price tends
2: to be pretty uh, pretty similar across the country. There's a spread of a few dollars uh, a megawatt unit
1: typically across the whole country. Yeah, yeah. So it is slightly cheaper in the South Island because that it's close to the generation source. So you're not paying for losses and transmission charges. And then it gradually gets a bit more expensive as you go north. Maybe might be twenty percent more expensive in Auckland yep. compared to Invercargill. Yep. Okay. Um, and how does it work? Um, so,
0: so continuing this understanding of the grid, like how does it work with smaller, say, some of the smaller geothermal spots and that? Like, do they just all bid on that market
1: for? Yeah. Yeah. So all all electricity um, uh, above the like the micro size has to be bid into the market. Has to be settled through our wholesale markets in the in the legislation um yes, yeah, so that's how it works, and that's how um we ensure that there is a consistent market enabling people to make long term decisions yeah, which,
2: there, yeah there's an just to dwell on that um how the market works thing uh, it's there's an interesting nuance there with uh, renewable energy or more specifically energy that has a zero cost of fuel so so what happens with the lots of wind and solar and also geothermal is that they they want to be they want to be guaranteed to be dispatched when they've got fuel available because otherwise you can't you can't store up the wind and, and use it later if it, if it's blowing you want to use it as, as you got same with the sun and, and the geothermal fluid the nature of the power plants it just means that they don't ramp up and ramp down easily so they want to go 100 percent pretty much all the time as a base load so what they tend to do to make sure that they get what we call dispatched um is they bid in it a low very low value like one cent um and that and that guarantees that they get sort of at the bottom of this big generation stack they're at the bottom so they get they're guaranteed to get dispatched and then the more expensive generation with a cost of fuel the likes of huntley with the coal or the gas plants at, at mckee and so forth they sort of stack on top of that and they they end up being what, what we call the price setters mm. in the market
0: yeah that's interesting. I was talking to someone about this. Like, I mean, I'm still trying to conceptualize how this works, but it is a market mechanism, and yeah, it, it, the price is, is the the way we we work it out. It's 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 uh, it's interesting. So, so there is a centralized. Is that um? Well, what is the organisation that is responsible for that centralized market in New Zealand? Is it a government?
2: It's the system what? operator runs it, okay. and the electricity authority, which is a
0: government entity, they they set the rules and and how it should operate. And is that globally, is, it, is that sort of arrangement standard or is it a little bit more loose? Or
2: There's variations on it around yeah. the world, but the, it's fairly common to do that sort of generation stack arrangement around the world where there's an electricity market. The,
1: the nuance is sometimes we have more central planning mm. where a government will end up being a market maker um, and maybe will be one of the biggest takers as well. Mm. And there's sort of discussion that that could happen in New Zealand as well. I know with... Thermal op- co and stuff like that. Yeah and, yeah, and like offshore wind. Yep. It's like, it's got a lot of potential, but it's not economic. And there's this, this discussion that, oh, the government would just write a PPA, become a big off taker, and essentially influence that market. And it's obviously something that, you know, uh, would be quite concerning. Yeah. yeah. Mm because yep. it would create distortions as price manipulation yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah interesting okay so we've got this this mechanism and before that so you said like
1: 25 years so before that how, how did it work and it was essentially a planned system oh, so really? just like Riffway kind of described it used to be like that so yeah. they would have planners and boffins in Wellington who would decide we need some giant power plants let's build them here let's let's attract some offtakes so they would have um they worked with some foreign foreign companies to build big load centers and built the grid like that. And, and it was the whole trade-off between centrally planned versus efficient markets, like highly effective at getting things done quickly and spending a um, whole lot of money that may or may not be well allocated, mm-hmm. but you build at a rate that you could never normally build and develop at the speed. And, yeah, but but inefficiently, right? That's the point. Sure, yeah. sure. And and like, so the story of, there's quite a few p- power plants are kind of disaster stories economically and mm-hmm. some engineering perspective. Clyde. Well, Clyde is one example. One, yeah. one yeah. example yeah. was what, two billion over budget, probably one of the biggest drivers for some of the really harsh or economic conditions we had in the late 80s were on the back of overspending and over debt on Clyde. So like New Zealanders suffered from concentration of power from central planners making these big decisions back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So in terms of the trade-off, yeah, it's great. They built great, big, fantastic infrastructure, but the capital wasn't allocated properly. Mm. And so actually New Zealanders, everyday people, ended up paying severely for that. Yeah, it's interesting. I was watching
0: a documentary on that. The history of that era sort of moldering through to the long government and just the in a, in a way you know the, the way the labor government uh, the fourth labor government had to really come in and basically open everything up you had rogernomics and and basically you know sell off all of this stuff to kind of pay for what was done prior to that and it's mm-hmm. almost a role reversal because today we see you know labor government sort of centrally planning everything yeah and historically that's sort of the image we have in mind but mm-hmm. it was the national government that was you know pulling the strings and and that was old New Zealand and you don't you don't see that in New Zealand anymore really like the, the railways the the post office all of it was run by the government um so we are definitely you know the economy is liberalized quite a lot it has yeah. um and so i guess looking at opportunities for uh looking at bitcoin in particular but i mean there are a few projects emerging in New Zealand kind of a bit of exploratory stuff happening but um given that it seems maybe you guys know a bit more about this but it seems like we're in a relatively good position from an energy perspective though compared to other places in the world
1: Uh, yeah that's one way to so we're blessed in terms of our resources um i think it's a bit of a tragedy that we're not developing so many more of them though so we have this opportunity to be a leader and have like a really low cost of energy here and like electricity bills would be low and lots of industrial loads would Yeah, a competitive advantage, right? Yeah. yeah, And and we're not developing them. So Brad, what percentage of planned projects are actually getting built?
2: Well, it's too early to say, I think, at the moment, with mm-hmm. the, you know, this Transpower's got some twenty gigs of a pipeline, which you know, just g- g- for just for comparison g- yeah, purposes. T- 20
1: Gigawatts are so twenty thousand megawatts. Yep. It's so lot, yeah.
2: at the moment, the installed capacity of all of New Zealand's generation is about ten thousand. So that just gives you an idea of you know how much how many projects are currently being proposed. And, you know we don't have enough. You know, we run the clock forward ten years, we'll be able to say you know how many got up and and so forth. But overseas, the the sort of rule of thumb is about twenty to thirty percent of proposed projects will end up getting you know uh, bulldozers and and uh, dirt turned mm-hmm. and and built. Um. Which is is you know so a lot of projects are not gonna are not gonna get up.
0: Yeah.
1: So what a lot of what drives generation is the load, it's the offtake. That's mm. what that's what enables them to get built. And New Zealand is struggling for load. So twenty gigawatts, it's twice the current installed capacity. We're not struggling for generation opportunities. We've got them coming out our ears. We're struggling for large, long term load agreements. Well, that's like the Ty example, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think this is something
0: sort of more broadly you and know, i was talking to you about my you know my my publishing and my creative business and trying to locate in new zealand you know running a business in new zealand that actually builds and makes stuff you know and they, they happen to be books but whether it's you know books or or, or hardware or anything new zealand has been part of this sw- sweeping change to sort of globalize and you know export all of their manufacturing um but just with the way geopolitics are moving i feel like there's prudence in coming back to new zealand and actually having some on onshore stuff whatever that may be um 100% and, and i mean it's it seems like i mean that's sort of a, a, a political sort of a thing but clearly new zealanders need some security around food um, mm. and even just general commodities and things um and so building out some of those industrial parks new developments and that sort of thing i mean obviously that would need more generation if you're going to have factories yep. and things getting stood up so
2: yeah i i i agree with that sentiment and, and it, it makes sense from a security point of view to have more localized manufacturing uh the the challenge for the country is who's going to be willing to pay for it you know when you can outsource it to to China with their huge industrial base you know we we just can't compete on a cost basis so i feel like as a society we need to have more mature conversations about you know what is the real cost of us you know importing all these goods from from overseas cheaply um what what if that what if that source of goods goes away and all of a sudden we can't buy that tractor how do we how do we maintain our farms mm-hmm. and stuff well, if we can't buy a tractor from overseas you know if we've got no expertise to build that ourselves mm, mm. you know that that seems like we're setting ourselves up for a, mm. a potential challenge i think about this a lot
1: it's a part of building a business that has got a large component of its manufacturing in, in new zealand and they're working out what the supply chains and partners are um, the issue is around security and resiliency of that right mm. and that's what you saw during covid as supply chains fall to pieces um so some of these sort of just base necessities start getting threatened like food and fuel supply that that exact thing has happened with fuel and in, in in the past year is that um we had petrol shortages and that's why we saw these price spikes because now we're now we don't have a refinery in country anymore we yeah. can't take anyone's crude we're d- reliant on refineries over in Brisbane and Singapore and so that that was sort of a decision I, I think that forgot about the security piece oh it's extremely short sighted wasn't yeah. it and I yeah. think that the, the discussion the intelligent debate is around how do you make your country more secure. Or anti-fragile so in times of change in times of crisis you can actually deal with it it's not that you're carrying all the stock in New Zealand all the time it's that you've actually done some work that you can deal with whatever the event is whether it's a cyclone like Gabriel's a great example right so I was over in the Hawke's Bay for that I know Cody and when helped you um helped over at the farm get it go back to sort of because they absolutely yeah, it smoked flo- there right flooded, yeah. Like, yeah yeah mm. um and that was a great example where there were people Uh, i suspect it was exactly the same way you were like weeks without power and when you're weeks without power you start to have like sanitation problems these are like serious health issues come from these big events and um i mean you've written about it um basically we we learned that there was like we were way more fragile than when we realized just Mm. just i mean that was a huge storm but just from that storm yeah
0: i I think there's there's definitely some questions around what what new as well Mm. and you know there's this kind of dilemma at the moment where farmers and people working on the land in the primary sector have been demonized uh, I think quite clearly and Mm. at the end of the day though since the beginning New Zealand has been an agricultural country and so you know Maybe we, you know, we're never going to have a semiconductor manufacturing facility here, but yeah, we, I doubt it. Yeah. you know, we that's that's not going to happen. But what will happen is we will continue to create food, mm-hmm. and we need the inputs for that, and so fuel, um, and and some of those fertilizer, you know, yep. fertilizers, these kinds of things, which are energy intensive to, to create. Being able to make sure we've got that on onshore is going to be really important. So maybe it's kind of like having a national discussion around what that looks like, because uh yeah we we're not we're not china we're not taiwan we're not japan we don't have the ability to build um you know vehicles as to the spec mm-hmm. that they need to be today you know there used to be um vehicle assembling here we when, did. when mm-hmm. cars were very simple but yeah. uh, that, that's just probably not realistic right now but if we can have at least energy
1: fertilizer um you know petroleum products those sorts of things you know available I mean, the assembly was here because they had trade wars and tariffs so yeah. then they created incentives to do assembly in kind country of kind of busy work yeah it yeah. was actually perverse because you ended up sucking
0: yeah um, yeah
1: manipulating the prices of things it well changed. it was just sort of
0: like you know putting putting you know screwing the bolts together it wasn't really like precision manufacturing i don't think um yeah.
2: the agricultural one is is really interesting because you know you're seeing a lot of uh, advancements in, you know like lab grown meat and things like that at the moment and, and lab grown milk um so i think we have to be a little bit careful with all of our eggs in the in the farming basket potentially. Um when, you know, if if you can cheaply produce milk, uh, without a cow, um, that that's uh very could be potentially very disruptive for uh the New Zealand agriculture industry, right? So
0: um how
2: likely that is in the next ten, fifteen years, oh, it's hard to say.
0: But yeah. um well is that I mean that that is an existential question though, but I think there's still I mean, people don't realize, but New Zealand, a lot of it is export-orientated. I don't know if you guys... I mean, I'm certainly... The apples that we eat in the supermarket are the ones that they don't want to... They don't want to export. Yeah. You know, Same with the lamb, right? You yeah. know? So, I mean, we get all the second best stuff here, and we still pay we still pay premium
1: prices. But, um, you know, looking at cheese and, and, and meat and that. But. I've got some thoughts on milk and meat. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. So, so, part of... So I've tried vegetarianism and veganism a little bit over the years but part of getting involved in Bitcoin Bitcoin has been getting like just much more aware of what I'm eating and i I, I am a hunter already what's so, the connection there with um I think it's uh, a it's, it's something that Cody talks about hyper local hyper global yeah so um, using technology to leverage connections to far distant markets but then being way more connected with like the most important things in your life like how you spend your time what you put in your body and who and who you spend your time with and it's it's what what drags you into that Co- cody oh uh, why oh oh i think th-
0: so th- it's i mean it's ideology right and and so the idea of say lab grown meat you know there's just something about that which if you accept it at face value and you just say well that's the way it's going to be you're actually throwing away a huge amount of historical relationships to the land yes to people, to community, um, and I feel like that that future, which is a possibility, is the antithesis to the actual solid human um, connection to others, which you get through these kind of local communities. And so, um, meat is is a great one. You know, there's this real push to not eat meat. You know, and and we're going to see it maybe get priced out and and things like that. You know, and but the reality is, you know, having some local homegrown
1: you know, for, when you say for, push, there's like a lot of information out there saying meat's like unhealthy, like eat less, eat less, get it right at the top of the food pyramid where it should be once a week, sort of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's something I've questioned hugely the last two years because from my research, <laughs> meat's pretty damn nutritious and it's sustained us as a species for quite a while. It, it's it's a conversation with ourselves around
0: what what we want to be, mm. and I think that's kind of this period that we're entering now where. I actually think um, we can all have very good lives, and we can be very holistic. And the the, the need for something grown in a factory, and you know that, that you're then going to consume, it's like that's not the future that I signed up for.
1: And is that secure? Relying on a factory for my food, like I, I I quite like the idea of knowing that if the Apocalypse came and the zombies were around. There's some sheep and cows running around. Here from I could go and harvest one of them and keep my family going, right? Like, well, I
0: mean, that even even that paradigm, so the way you've situated that still, I think, plays into this um, narrative that we're in at the moment. Like, that's not going to happen. I think what it's going to be is it's going to be, uh, you know, a slow ratcheting up of, of challenges. And there's going to be people who just say, no, I don't don't want to be part of this. I just want to have a good life and build a, a solid uh, community around me. And, um, yeah, and that's kind of where you get a citadel theory come from, right? Like I don't I don't I'm, I don't I'm not signed up to any of this stuff politically. Like I'm not I'm I'm disenfranchised politically. I don't want to be part of your thing. I just wanna enjoy my life in peace and, and quiet, you know? And I think that's yeah, sorry, it's it's hard to articulate, but that's kind of where we're at. It's this like it's a cultural war, it's a political war. Um and Bitcoin kind of offers a bit of a lens to just be like, "Whoa, well, wait a minute, this is all bullshit," you know. Like we can
1: actually—I feel like because you get better debate, I feel like you start becoming more questioning. Mm. Yeah, when you got to do a, a bit Bitcoiner. of work. You got to do yeah. a bit of work, right? So, so you really got to work to understand what the yeah. frigate even is. Yeah, and then you start hearing these debates going on. You start being able to form maybe your own ideas. Well, yeah, your your own ideas, and I mean, again, for myself, coming back to the
0: historical piece, like. Um, you know, I'm always reading, um, you know, ancient, ancient Greek, ancient Roman stuff and, and understand kind of like this is not a new problem. You know, the government overreach um, kind of trying to control people, basically, you know, that's been throughout humanity's history. And it's this this it's rational, right it's expected. it's the
2: power the power accumulation you, you right you would
1: yeah. expect some powerful entity to want to accumulate more power mm. it's the rational action yeah of a centralized entity and, and what bitcoin represents is is decentralization mm. and continual decentralization yeah that's the cool part
0: yeah and it's like a it's pushing against that flow mm. and so yeah if, if i can have a couple of angus uh, cattle and um, a bitcoin miner and some solar panels and mm. a good life um, it's not for everyone, mm. but I think at least having some the people... The option exists, right? The optionality, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. And I think there's like this ethical question about meat, right? So I think one thing New Zealanders do very well is quite often we can show these ethical stories that our meat is like very ethically sourced. Like The, the great example is the home kill guy, right? The happy cow in the paddock next to the house for three years and one day the home kill guy just takes it away like this. The number of seconds of suffering, sometimes zero, the cow didn't even know. Yeah, you often get these like, these images of cows and advertised overseas. And sure, these is, is, is are terrible situations, completely unethical practices. It should, it, should, it should be stopped, but that's not what we do in New Zealand. No, mm. no. And I mean, same with
0: um, uh, orchards, um, arable crops, all of that stuff. New Zealand's extremely ethical, and farmers, if you yes. actually take the time to sit down and talk to them, they are kaitiaki. They are stewards mm. of the land. They um, they love what they do. Otherwise, you know, they,
1: they've chosen to be there. They've chosen to
0: be there. You know, so um and that's why i enjoy talking to people who work on the land because they get it Mm. um so i think what it is and that's kind of the whole idea about this podcast is is kind of i mean bitcoin's a thing but it's there's also something bigger which is this move towards uh, decentralization and i think just human prosperity prosperity which we are struggling with at the moment Mm. and Gen less and um you know eating food out of a that's grown in a lab and, and all of these things
1: are, they're not that I quite like this idea of what's the biggest problem in the world right now um, it's like we're all told it's probably climate change and probably a virus probably what what the main media would tell us is the main problem and I have a real similar sense is I think there's a way bigger problem it's like how do you empower individuals to have just empowered lives that, that, mm. I think it's a far bigger problem. Like, why are so many people stuck inside on screens depressed? Mm. That, that seems to me like a way bigger problem than, yeah, yeah so, so like the climate um, um, slowly heating up could cause some reasonably challenging situations in certain parts of the world. Like, it, it's something that needs to be addressed, but there's, there's bigger stuff. Well, I, I well, think- It's a symptom too, right? It's a symptom of that larger problem in a way I think so sorry Cody. Yeah, yeah
0: no so my, my perspective on that you know working with um, these kinds of uh, you know people who work the land I know that in 50 years um, you know there's, there's going to be parts of New Zealand where you can you, you'll be able to grow kiwi fruit that you can't currently mm-hmm. do it now, there'll be parts of New Zealand where you can get really good wine and you won't be able to get good wine mm-hmm. anymore that will that, just yep. be the change that's what it means locally and we're already yeah. seeing this there's, that's a good point. there's kiwi fruit going in in places like Whanganui there's uh, you know apples being put in in places where you know you couldn't previously do it because of frost you know the the climate is changing in these areas but Mm. what it means is that somebody gets up in the morning um, they they make a coffee and they go out and they do the work and you know whether they have to build a seawall or they have to do something um, and at the same time also uh, reducing those greenhouse gas emissions by doing more sustainable agriculture someone has to do the work though and talking about it and You know, just trying it from that consumer kind of sophistry sort of side, where it's like, well, we're just going to talk about it and stop you getting up in the morning to do your thing. I I think that's where the challenge lies. Like, we need better practices, and we will do that. That's just part of it. But when you try and kind of come in with the the stick, and you say, well, you know, we're gonna, you know, you're gonna tax your ute, and we're gonna stop you actually doing what you need to do. I think that's where the the political thing comes in. It actually stops good outcomes. Yeah. I I love
1: this idea that if you have one philosophy to live your life by, that it's proof of work. Yeah. And nothing <laughs> I've ever come across comes close to it, and it's not even you. Yeah. Marcus Aurelius is writing about it 2,000 yeah. years ago.
0: Yeah. And um, you can extrapolate proof of work into other things, though, as well, because it also is intangible in the sense of you've got to do the work for your community. Mm-hmm. You, you know, love your family, what you put in. It's karmic. It's all of these different global things that actually come back together um you know if you put in good you're gonna get out good if you put in bad you're gonna get out bad Mm. um and i think this this could perhaps just be a a reawakening of a a discussion about what what it means for us to be here
1: what it means for us to uh, collaborate what it means to be human yeah like what are humans born to do things like life like work like we're made to do it many of my most rewarding experiences have been on the back of some in, insanely hard piece of effort yes mm-hmm. yep. the, the other stories i tell i don't tell the stories about how i was really lucky mm, 100%. Or, or i had a, a great idea and didn't do anything about it that they're not great stories
0: yeah so i mean i guess at a high level you know i feel uh, bitcoin is a, is a great conduit um for this this idea of proof of work and, and even for myself as an artist as a photographer i can say okay you know i'm i'm putting stuff out there i'm, I'm making i'm putting things into the world whether it's a photo book or an exhibition or, or something um telling stories but then also being able to activate them you know they're not empty words mm. and i think you know together there's different people in the space whether it's people working in energy people working in um, software all of these different sort of agents who have come together and said yeah we actually we're, there is a better way And we're just going to work towards that. Um, And we're going to, you know, we're just going to work together. And I I think there's something really positive. And that positivity we just haven't seen for so long that it's almost strange. But it used to be very common. And in the 50s and 60s and 70s, where did Think Big come from? People were excited
1: and they were like, yeah, let's do this. I've got a cool little proof of work story. Go for it. Um, So after listening to your podcast, I've got my kids on Moon Wallet for their pocket money oh yeah (laughs) and before um i didn't know what i was doing they're on coinbase wallet and like coinbase is anti-bitcoin right it tries to just doesn't even don't even mention it hardly in the um when you're on the website it's hard to even find it coinbase wallet rounds off the ends of your satoshis so it's like 0.0074 and it doesn't have the 3596 so it it doesn't work for a kid they don't know what 0.0074 means Mm. i got a moon wallet now it's in sats view. So my like little guy's got seven hundred and fifty thousand sets. I'm, 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 your Zoobi <laughs> music thing, they like, get to him, become millionaires. I'm doing this exact thing with my kids. Like, dudes, you'll be a millionaire. They're so stoked on it. So my little guy, and and also got these um uh set tips yeah. that you talked about. Yeah. So I got these in my wallet right now. My little guy, he, usually he would say, "Can I go on a screen? Can I go on a screen?" Mm. Now he's like, "Okay, what what do I got to do? What do I got to do, <laughs> do gotta, you gotta mow the lawn, You got go mow the lawn, son." here we are there at seven thirty in the morning like in his pajamas like trying to start up the lawnmower because he just wants <laughs> these sets. like like it's driving it's saying his behavior having a wallet with sats in it is meaning he wants to get outside and mow the lawns versus going on screens and it's this amazing. is like I, I did this from you listening to your podcast and like the next day i noticed a change in his behavior and i was like whoa what's um that's
0: that's excellent what's what's your proof of work story right oh, um i'm struggling to to think of a good
2: one at the moment to be honest i can't i can't rival that I, i've fitness? well yeah i think it, it probably is fitness that's a good point I, I love my running um i'm not running much at the moment because of uh an injury but um yeah that's speaks to the what you were saying before about the you know the most satisfying moments that you, that you have in your life is when you've really put it's in the that process that that extra effort of doing the work right yeah. so yeah, um, yeah. For me, that that's often in the exercise
0: space. Yes, that's yeah. that, that's excellent. And look, I think you know, sort of as you know, concluding remarks. But for myself, um, I know a lot of people who have you know whether they've given up smoking or they've um, started exercise. You know these kinds of things. Um, and and you know for myself, you know I've started doing um, you know some some training and and, and some exercise as well. Um, you know, been working my business. You know, and just mm-hmm. thinking, uh, it, there's this little switch that changes, and you understand why the the Buddhist monks get up at. You know, 4am and they sweep the sand or you understand why the farmer gets up uh, to milk the cows you understand all of these things that we've kind of drift, drifted from and 100%
1: drifted yeah, from
0: you know it's getting lost from culture yeah and um, I think we're very lucky and we can carry that with us and we can teach others and um, there's something very rewarding about it um, but hey guys I think that's probably a good a good place to wrap um, I'm just curious um, if you guys had anywhere you wanted to send the listeners if they wanted to connect with you
1: find out more maybe reach out like what's is there any yeah I mean I, I um, am starting to get more active on Twitter so by all means um Mike underscore Lizelle um, um, I've certainly got expecting to do some like uh, developments and innovation around Bitcoin and generation in the next two years. Um, so I'd love to start some conversations with people around that for sure.
2: Yeah, I guess I've I've started a Substack, started writing recently actually, so which is which is pretty cool. Um, can't, I don't know what the
0: you can look it up on. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah,
2: great. Um, yeah, I've only got two posts at the moment, but um, you know I'll try. I'm, I've got a goal to, to get one a month out um, from now on at least, just to, to try and build that up.
0: So uh, hey, that's 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 really cool. And like, I think um, writing and that thought leadership is also really important because there's a lot of people doing stuff, but also just thinking about the thing before you do it is also really um, critical and i think you know things like podcasts and these kinds of platforms Substack can be really good for that as well um but hey mike brad i really appreciate your time i think we covered some great stuff and um yeah thank you very much
1: thanks cody it's been awesome. a pleasure yeah thanks cody appreciate it. Good. great to chat